Welcome to the PeedsNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner and Clinical Assistant Professor at the Catholic University of America. Today's episode continues our Season 7 mini-series on cognitive bias in healthcare. If you haven't already listened to the last episode, then I suggest you hit pause and go back to catch up on diagnostic error in America and start to learn about how our brains work. If you're all caught up, Let's get started as we think about clinical context and how information delivery shapes the way we think. The diagnostic process can be as short as a few minutes in a clinic, or it can take weeks to fully work up a patient. So what kinds of things impact how we interpret information to make decisions? Because we know that most diagnostic errors derive from one or more flaws in cognitive thinking and the decision-making process, rather than knowledge deficits, we know that when we learn about how we gather data, we can better identify weak areas that predispose us to bias and then redirect to best practices. In other words, we need to think about how we think. What kinds of things do we need to think about? The way and order in which information is presented can alter your perception of a situation. Did you lead with certain information that might alter the perception of the patient? Like the working diagnosis rather than the presenting symptoms. This can prime the listener to anchor on the first diagnosis without considering other items on the differential. For instance, if you hear, room one is an 11-year-old with acute gastroenteritis and abdominal pain who just vomited again after a PO challenge. Do you think about it differently than if you heard, Room one is an 11-year-old with an acute onset of fever, vomiting, and abdominal pain yesterday. He hasn't tolerated oral fluids due to persistent vomiting. You might feel like the verbiage in the second patient opens the possibility to think more broadly about the diagnosis, rather than pigeonholing them into a box to receive on Dancitron and a second PO challenge. Your experience brings valuable pieces of clinical expertise to your practice but it can also influence your readiness to identify certain diagnoses. It's called availability bias when your past experiences are exaggerated in the likelihood of you choosing a certain diagnosis because it's fresh on your mind. I had a colleague who once diagnosed Wilms tumor in a child who presented with constipation and forever after she considered cancer in every impacted child. It was a great diagnostic win on that patient but that kind of bias could lead a provider to medical waste by overusing diagnostic studies, causing unnecessary worry in the family, or leading to overdiagnosis. What else affects how we receive information? The inclusion or exclusion of certain information can change everything. Making assumptions or filling in the gaps of missing or incomplete information sets you up for diagnostic error. Did you prioritize certain information to the neglect of other details? Did you make assumptions about the patient or leave out important details that would change your management, like immunization status, drug, alcohol, tobacco use, or sexual activity? Conversely, did you add information that might influence the listener? What if you heard, the patient is an 18-year-old male who presented with altered mental status, slurred speech, and ataxia. The paramedic smelled alcohol on his breath. Does that change the way you think about this patient? You may think, of course he's drunk. How could that not be related? It's well documented in adult literature that alcohol intoxication can lead to the misdiagnosis of stroke, 
even though they present with similar symptoms and can also occur simultaneously. So let's try and think deeper about what you know about adolescent males and risk-taking behavior, and therefore increasing the risk for trauma. Or do you know his past medical history? Are you sure it was alcohol on his breath and not ketoacidosis? In this presentation of altered mental status in an adolescent male, we can certainly consider substance use, but we need to keep the differential diagnosis open and should consider things like traumatic brain injury, intracranial hemorrhage, CNS infection, and DKA, among others. But the alcohol framed how you saw this patient. Are there environmental factors that can influence decision-making? Yes. Clinical context really matters, which is an important part of considering pathophysiology and epidemiology of disease. Age, seasonality, geography, acuity of the patient population, sensitivity and specificity of a diagnostic test, among others, are all important clinical clues that you use on a daily basis to determine the likelihood of a certain disease in your differential. And these can be valuable because the context really helps us instantly rule out certain diagnoses. A good example is how you unknowingly rule out certain vaccine-preventable diseases in fully immunized patients, or how you use age to think about the most common pathogen-causing disease. But not all clinical context is good. Clinical demands can weigh on your decision-making abilities, like the clinical setting, patient volume, or acuity. My colleagues and I discuss something we call waiting room stress and the pressure of having a lobby full of angry parents and crying babies that makes us rush through a patient visit with far more brevity than we would otherwise because we want to decompress the busy waiting room. In my mind, there may be a sick kid hiding in the waiting room, so we need to get through these other non-sick kids to find them. This pressure can cloud your judgment and make you skip important pieces of the visit increasing the risk that you'll miss something. Patient volume adds to decision fatigue, and the number of decisions you make in a given day can really add to brain fog and impact your freshness for substantive thought. Katherine Schultz, the author of Being Wrong, tells us that, quote, making a decision, whether it is right or wrong, feels the same. The hard task is making the decision, and then we feel good about having a conclusion to the conundrum. And then we use our own cognitive bias to convince ourselves that it was the right decision, even if it was wrong, end quote. So if we can pare down our decisions, relying on heuristics using things like algorithms, mnemonics, and pathways, we can save our cognitive energy for larger loads that require a more metacognitive approach. We'll talk more about these strategies and others like it as we continue with case studies in the mini-series. Salient distracting features are things that stand out because they're suggestive of a condition, say, purpura being concerning for meningococcemia. But although they seem plausible at first sight, the gut reaction is not the correct diagnosis because other illness processes can cause purpura too. In a job where we're supposed to recognize patterns in illness scripts, salient distracting features can be really appetizing to our desire for an answer, making them difficult to ignore. They misdirect our thinking to an unrelated problem and can lead to diagnostic error. Strangely enough, finding a diagnosis can actually lead to diagnostic error. This is called search satisfaction. 
We're looking for an answer to the chief complaint, and when we find an abnormality, we call off the search for anything else to explain the problem. There's a great example of this in an article by Berkwit and Grossman about cognitive bias in inpatient pediatrics. Spoiler alert, I'm about to give away their case study. In short, a three-year-old with no past medical history presented with limp and fever. His review of systems showed intermittent abdominal pain, increased loose stools, and a three-pound weight loss. The workup showed multifocal osteomyelitis. But does that explain the belly pain, increased stools, and weight loss? Nope. The hospital team treated the infection and sent him home. It took persistent and worsening symptoms to clue the team into his inflammatory bowel disease, which can present with multifocal osteomyelitis. The osteomyelitis was present, but it was a symptom of underlying disease rather than the end diagnosis. Even though the presentation with belly pain, weight loss, and diarrhea didn't fit the illness script of osteomyelitis, the team stopped looking for a cause when a diagnosis was found. Have you ever made a judgment about somebody by the way they look or an underlying diagnosis? I cared for an adolescent female one time who was so dramatic after what I deemed to be a minor fall up the stairs. Sound familiar? I rolled my eyes at the histrionic teen and got an x-ray anyway because she would barely let me examine her. Turned out she had a supracondylar fracture. Attribution error is where you assume a malady is related to a person's character trait rather than a valid medical problem. It also happens a lot in patients with underlying mental health and substance use comorbidities. But these patients still deserve the same thoughtful, compassionate care as everyone else. Which brings me to a tough climax in this episode of the podcast. Self-reflection is essential to recognize your own implicit bias. These are biases that we have without even knowing it, and they're often created and shaped by culture, society, emotion, and experience. In being aware of them, you can better remain blind, objective, and reduce the impact of these effects on you and your patients. Doing this will not only affect your risk of diagnostic error, but will help you foster positive patient relationships. I'm going to say some words, and I want you to think about where you stand on these controversial topics. You ready? Immigrant. Sex. Anti-vaxxer. Transgender. Incarceration. How did you feel about those words? Did you have any mental pictures of a situation or a type of person that those words would describe? Were they fair? Or did you have some stereotypes and preconceived notions break through? That's implicit bias. Now I'm going to say some more words and continue the exercise. Neonate, infant, toddler, preschooler, school-aged child, adolescent, advocate, support system, medical home. That feels easier. Did you think about your patients and your important role in children's health care? Okay, now gut check yourself. Would your views stand in the way of you being able to deliver non-biased care to a child? Would a patient feel comfortable being open and honest with you because you're equipped to show compassion, empathy, and understanding to someone different from yourself? Do you know how to have tough conversations and offer evidence-based solutions to the patient and family? Examining yourself for bias can be emotional and tough. If you find some topics are particularly difficult for you, 
I encourage you to seek answers in scholarly places. Go to our national organization, NAPNAP, or the American Academy of Pediatrics and read their position statements and white papers on these controversial topics so that you can better understand the scope of the problem, validated statistics on the current state, how it impacts children, and their evidence-based recommendations for providing health care. We've talked a lot about the problem of cognitive bias and diagnostic error in healthcare. In the coming weeks, we'll put our knowledge to practice as we discuss cases. We'll start with the seemingly benign chief complaint, identify the cognitive bias that led to diagnostic error, reveal the acute care diagnosis, and reflect on some best practice tools and strategies that can be used to prevent bias in the first place. Our discussion today was certainly not an exhaustive list of the things that impact the way we think. In fact, there are dozens of types of cognitive biases, some of which we'll cover in the coming weeks, others you'll just have to recognize for yourself with your new toolbox of metacognition. Inevitably, we as humans will fall short at some time or another in our thinking and succumb to cognitive bias. It's uncomfortable to talk about our shortcomings and mistakes but the ability to humbly admit those mistakes is essential to growing as a provider. Because in doing so, you can increase your awareness and improve your diagnostic accuracy. Join us next time as we begin that journey to recognition through adaptive expertise and metacognitive thought. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PZNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PZNP. You can see show notes and references at the newly updated website. Visit www.thepedsnp.com for all the details. Tweet me at the PZNP or find me on Instagram at the PZNP podcast. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're searching for your sources of bias for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.